Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jonathan All. President Barack Obama described our next guest as someone whose voice is going to be making a difference for years to come. Brittany Packnett is back in her hometown this week to speak tonight at 7 o'clock at the Ethical Society of St. Louis and at an event entitled Visionary Voices, A Candid Conversation with Brittany Packnett. Brittany, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. I'm intrigued with the title of this event, A Candid Conversation. Um, you've never been anything less than candid <laughs> in anything that you've ever had to say about a town that you love. True uh, story. Warts and all. So what 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 are you going to be, not to give it away, but <laughs> sure. what are you going to be talking about tonight? I mean, it is true. I try my best um, to tell the truth out loud and in public. That is what we call the act of protest. And so I, I tell the truth about St. Louis because I love it. Um, you know, I, I'm actually surprised we're on the air today. I figured today would be a holiday with <laughs> us finally bringing the Stanley <laughs> Cup home. Um, I was on the plane last night coming, a very late flight, but it was exuberant, as you can imagine, with lots of St. Louisans on board. And Glory was played many times over the loudspeaker. Um, but in as much as moments like this really really bring us together. Um, We can't ignore the underbelly of what's continuing to happen. I mean, the last conversation you just had, you talked about the lack of diversity in hockey. My younger brother, Barrington, is an incredibly talented leader and preacher, but he's also a very talented athlete, and he um, plays hockey, um, and he is usually one of very few people of color on the ice, um, and yet that really is an issue of access, right? That He's been able to afford the equipment and can get all the way out to Kirkwood to play, Um, and I think this is a really great opportunity for um, the blues and for other sports enthusiasts to figure out how to create access for young people of color to that sport and other sports that they can't access. Um, and, and these are the kind of kinds of conversations we're going to be having tonight, not just about what's wrong, but how we together can create a St. Louis that is reflective of all of us, that supports all of us, and then is a place that empowers all of us. It's been almost five years since Michael Brown was shot. Um, what is your general take on where things are now compared to where they were when people first started to protest this and first started to make their voices heard about some issues related to it? You know, five years ago wasn't necessarily a beginning. It was a turning of the page to a new chapter in a centuries-long freedom struggle, not just in this city, but in this country. Um, There have been people who have been fighting for the liberation of our most marginalized communities for generations. And our generation and other generations surrounding us took up that cause on August 9th, 2014. Um, And that uprising is something that not only stands as seminal in St. Louis history, but truly in American history. I think that the moment we find ourselves in as a country um, is deeply indebted to all of the thousands of people who took to the streets um, in those months, in those 400 days, to ensure that liberty and freedom and justice could actually be for all and not just for some. Um, I think everything from the 2020 election to social conversations on um, issues of identity um, are due in large part to the fact that people made their voices heard in Ferguson. And so I think that the conversation has changed. I think that a level of awareness has certainly increased. I see many, many more people deciding to have the difficult conversation, deciding to talk about race, deciding to talk about gender and gender identity, deciding to talk about the fact that the police actually are not serving and protecting everyone. Um, And that is happening nationally. It's happening locally. You know, when they see us, uh, Ava DuVernay's new film um, on Netflix about the Central Park and now Exonerated Five has been the most watched 
item on Netflix every single day since its release on May, on May 31st. And I don't believe that would have been true had the Ferguson uprising uh, not occurred. Um, so I certainly think that there's a, a heightened level of awareness and a heightened level of engagement that hasn't necessarily translated to change yet, though. And we have to remember that it took us centuries, years, decades to get into the situation we're in now. So it's going to take a very long time for us to work our way into a fully equitable and free society. Um, But that doesn't mean that the work isn't important. That's part of the reason why we're having the conversation tonight. But I continue to see a great deal of commitment and dedication from this community. Organizations like the Arch City Defenders, um, Action St. Louis, Women's Voices that is hosting um, the event tonight, they are coming together to make sure that we no longer ignore um, the issues in our community and that we actually take responsibility to solve them. How do you gauge progress from... And, and I, I understand that the Michael Brown shooting, it was definitely not a beginning. It was an, an event sure. that's on a much longer timeline. Mm-hmm. But since it is one of those flashpoints that things end up getting measured by, how can you, how do you measure progress from that? Especially considering just this week, we're, we're talking about uh, St. Louis police officers that posted racist yep. things on Facebook. Who have yet uh, to be fired. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking about um, uh, the cash bail system at uh, mm-hmm. the facility known as the workhouse That's and right. how it disproportionately affects people of color That's and right. people who are poor. Um, d- with those kinds of things in the headlines and still making news, are there things in, in progress? Uh, do you see progress or is it a mixed bag? How do you assess that? I think there absolutely has been progress. And it's important, um, especially in work that is this taxing and this difficult, to celebrate the wins when we have them. We saw the election of Wesley Bell to the county prosecutor's office when everyone said Bob McCullough could not be defeated. And it is important to recognize that that victory came not by traditional establishment systems, but by activists and by grassroots organizers who, when they came together on the streets of Ferguson nearly five years ago, did not stop simply at that. They continued to do this work. So we saw Kayla Reed and Action St. Louis and so many others organize um, and, and get out the vote in communities that had been long forgotten about by the political powers that be. We saw an increase in political participation um, in black and brown communities and low-income communities. That is a victory because not only did a lot of those folks show up to vote, they then showed up and say, how can I volunteer on the next campaign? I want to knock on some doors. I want to go get some signatures. Creating the biggest choir for justice that we possibly can is always the work. Um, and adding more folks to that, as has been done in St. Louis is absolutely a victory. But the the point of this is always to never, ever let systems off the hook. We will finally see a day of full equity and freedom when the system works for everyone, irrespective of who's in office, no matter who the county prosecutor is, no matter who the mayor is, no matter who um, the, the county supervisor is. We need to make sure that the system actually works for people. And so the, the things that you're talking about are evidence that the system is not working, that the system that um, creates a workhouse where 90% of the detainees are pretrial, folks that have not been found guilty of any crime where eight times as many of the of the detainees there are black even though st louis is only 47 percent black 
that is evidence of a system not working, right? And so that is work that we still have to do. When we see a lack of accountability, when officers can post wildly racist things and still keep their jobs um, and carry guns into communities where they have the power to shoot and kill the very people that they're speaking negatively about, that lack of accountability shows us that there's still a flaw in the system. So this is not just about a single person. This is not about bad actors or good actors. This is about dismantling systems that are harmful and replacing them with systems that actually work for everyone, no matter who's in charge. I think it's a good time to mention that on tomorrow's program, we're going to hear from Inez Bordeaux um, and Ben Cohen uh, from Ben and Jerry's, who are talking about conditions at the workhouse and their concerns with cash bail and the problems there. We're also going to hear from Jimmy Edwards, uh, the director of public safety, uh, on that issue as well. Um, I'd like to invite our listeners into this conversation. If you have a question or comment about this topic, you can give us a call at 314 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. What do you think Arch City Defenders is contributing to the conversation and the action on these issues? Oh my gosh, so much. I am such a big fan of Blake and Michael John and everyone on the team over there. You know, they are continuing to do the quiet work. Um, In the work of social justice, it is our responsibility to use every single tool we have in our toolbox. Voting is a tool. Protest is a tool. um, Running for office is a tool. Accountability measures are tools. Um, So is litigation. And if we look to history, we can see the power of litigation. Litigation brought us Brown versus Board. Um, Litigation um, brought us marriage equality, right? In the same way, litigation can move us forward in the work of police accountability and criminal justice reform. And so they are doing the quiet work when all of the cameras have gone, when the shouting is done, to litigate those cases, to show up for people who don't have the resources for anyone else to show up for them, um, making sure that their voices are heard, making sure that they are well represented, and making sure that the conversations that we were having in Ferguson, particularly around the ways in which police departments have been raising revenue off of the backs and abuse of mostly people of color, Um, is actually seen all the way through. And so they are in the midst of those lawsuits right now, trying to make sure that police departments don't raise their funds by aggressively pulling people over, by aggressively jailing people, by relying on things like cash and money bail. Um, I think that they are contributing a great deal, um, and they deserve not only our support, but they deserve our attention because they are going to, they are pursuing and, and will prayerfully win some of the most important fights in this battle. You mentioned litigation, and I'm wondering your take on both the new Missouri State Supreme Court rules on cash bail that'll take effect July 1st and the federal judge's ruling with even more restrictions on it that came out last week. Can you, in your mind, connect the dots between those actions and some of the activism and the conversations and the things that you've been involved in for the last so many years? So I always encourage people um, when it comes to this conversation about protest and policy and the marriage of the two to go back and read Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. If you remember the context, he is responding directly to white clergy um, in Birmingham, Alabama, who are literally telling him to wait, to slow down and to stop being so confrontational. 
what he reminds them is that confrontation is not only necessary, but it is how we actually create the conditions that force negotiation. Those clergy told him, just wait your turn and eventually it will be time to negotiate your freedom. He said, look, if I wait my turn, it will never come. We know that wait almost always means never, he said. But what he did say was that direct conflict and um, disciplined nonviolent protest and activism creates the conditions that force power structures to change. And so that's the way that I connect these dots, that activists um, at every level have been ensuring that this is a conversation that we don't ignore. They've been humanizing this conversation to help people understand that if you simply can't afford $250, dollars $1,000, that you can end up um, giving practically free labor to the state of Missouri, that you can end up deeply harmed or at worst dead, all because you are impoverished. And poverty should never be a crime. And them forcing that conversation within activist spaces and then more broadly into spaces of power across the city have forced power structures to change. Um, but we continue to see nationally that this is a great crisis. Laylene Polanco, a transgender woman from New York City, just died in Rikers Island um, because she was not able to afford $500 cash bail. The same was the story of Khalif Browder. So it's not just about reforming the money bail system, although that is a critically important part. It is actually about being imaginative enough to think about prison abolition, to think about what it would mean to close Rikers Island and right here to close the workhouse. Do you, do you think that, and you mentioned Dr. King's letter, do you think that that the message from some people of saying, don't protest so, so loudly, or don't protest in that way, mm-hmm. or don't protest in this arena, mm-hmm. is that just another veiled form of racism? I think it's another veiled form of racism. I also think it's a veiled form of fear, right? Because whenever people are confronted with an act of protest, it forces them to question and interrogate how much they benefit from the system as is. And if those protesters are asking us to change the system as is, what does that mean for me? People are deeply scared of that. But the truth of the matter is, whenever you come from a marginalized community, there frankly is no form of protest that is quote unquote acceptable. You know, Colin Kaepernick knelt silently during the national anthem, the third verse of which was deeply racist. Um, And even a silent protest was deemed inappropriate and unacceptable. So if I can't protest loudly and I can't protest silently, then the truth of the matter is, it is me protesting that you have an issue with, not how I'm doing it. And what I would would encourage people to do is reflect upon why they are taking issue with that, Um, why they are taking issue with that, especially knowing that the history of this country was founded in protest, that it was folks protesting against a crown across the pond that created America in the first place. So if you are the direct beneficiary of protest, ask yourself why it is so difficult for you to accept protests when it comes from certain communities, and then think about what you can do to actually listen to what those folks are saying, because you should always be more concerned with the conditions they're protesting than the way in which they're choosing to protest. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back momentarily to continue our conversation with St. Louis native Brittany Packnett. We'll also be taking your phone calls. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. 
Welcome back to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jonathan All. I'm talking with activist, educator, and writer Brittany Packnett, who's back in her hometown of St. Louis this week, the place where she participated in protests after the police shooting of Michael Brown and was appointed to the Ferguson Commission in 2014. We're going to take a phone call. Greg from St. Louis is on the line. Greg, thank you for calling. And uh, what's your comment? Uh, yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, my comment is that the state of Missouri has to change its whole uh, uh, justice system. Uh, a couple of years ago, they passed a bill where that you can get a nonviolent felony for a first-time offender expunged if it's been uh, a certain length of time. But the problem with that is that it still affects the the uh, black and uh, brown communities because uh, like 90% of people that's in the workhouse and in the justice system in Missouri are nonviolent felonies for like drug cases. So when they get out, they, it's hard for them to find a job. And so what happens is they have kids they get behind in their child support. And then once they get behind in their child support and they're not able to make the payments, then they, they get arrested and, and put them in the workhouse. And then once they're in the workhouse, they they pay, they they are paid. They they bond becomes whatever they owe back pay. But their record is still on them as being locked up for a felony for not paying child support. So when they go to get a nonviolent felony uh, expunged, they are not able to get an expunged because of that non-payment of child support. So we have to change, and that's going for the same people who overdrew on unemployment. You go, you you, you get locked up for overdrawing unemployment. And then they get put you on a payback plan, and then once you pay it back, it's not supposed to be on your record. But when you try to have a nonviolent felony expunged, then even though you paid the money back, you can't you can't get it done. Greg, thank you very much for your call. Those are a lot of good points, Brittany. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a response reaction to that? Well, Greg is absolutely right. What he's doing is highlighting and spotlighting the cycle that exists um, because we have to recognize that when someone is incarcerated, they don't just suffer for the time during which they are in jail or in prison. There are cyclical long-term effects, some of which Greg just illustrated. Um, The truth of the matter is we have criminalized poverty that we helped create. So we have created conditions, employment conditions, housing conditions, health conditions, and education conditions that give people very few options. And then when we create those conditions, um, we either jail people because they have engaged in crime, usually crime of lack, um, because they are trying to fill needs that they have, but we have not prepared them to do that in some other way, or they are um, being imprisoned for lots of other different reasons, failure to to pay things, um, uh, parking tickets, uh, I mean, uh, speeding tickets, all of these other things. Um, And then the cycle begins. So people are impoverished, they lose, I mean, people are imprisoned rather, they lose their jobs. Um, When they come out, it's more difficult for them to find a job because of the biases that exist. It is more difficult for them to find housing. They're actually restricted from being able to to have some housing, to have certain jobs. Um, And then the cycle repeats themselves itself because then they have to go and fill the lack that they have they have to go and fulfill their needs um, and often that that drives them down certain pathways so we have in fact criminalized poverty that we helped create because we have not created the conditions for healthy communities and so what Greg is reminding us of is that no solutions toward criminal justice reform that do not include education health 
housing and employment are ever going to be sufficient. It can't just be about banning the box. It can't just be about closing the workhouse. It can't just be about ending money bail. It also has to be about ensuring that our schools are top notch. It also has to be about ensuring that folks who want a job can have a job and that that job is paid at a living wage. It means that people can raise their families in, in, in housing that is healthy and creates good conditions for people to grow and thrive. It means that people can have access to the kind of mental and physical health care that keeps them strong to go out there into the labor force and do what they have to do every single day. All of these things are deeply interconnected, which means that our solutions have to be interconnected as well. I'm wondering what your take is on the Better Together plan that kind of disappeared uh, in, in, in part because of the, the fierce opposition to it from minority communities, specifically African-American communities. Um, it was even compared to, as, compared to apartheid yeah. uh, by, by, by one leader. Um, now, granted, there were other things that led to its demise. Sure. But the, 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 the concerns about the way that it would affect people of color in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, it even led to the ouster of the local leader of the NAACP who supported it. Um, do you do you have any sense on? I mean, is is that a victory of sorts that those issues were brought up and played some role in it, at least going away for now? And if it comes back, it may have to be reshaped in a way that makes more sense for more people. You know, I always say that no one is. Um theoretically voiceless, right? And I'm trying to find a less ableist way to say this, but um, (laughs) that everyone has an opinion that matters and it's not up to us to be a voice for the voiceless, but rather to pass the mic. Um, Got that from from some of my activist family right here in the streets of St. Louis. Um, And so any time that there is a spotlight shown on the needs and opinions of marginalized people, that is always a victory. What we also have to recognize, though, is that this is deeply complex. The lack of trust that communities of color have, not just in the police, but in broader institutions and um, systems that they deal with and and that they are impacted by in St. Louis, comes from a very real place. That lack of trust exists for a reason, because people have been abused, because people have been taken advantage of, because people have lacked access. And so we can't be mad at folks who are willing to stand up and say, I didn't trust your old system, so I don't necessarily trust you designing a new one for me. I'll never forget a Ferguson Commission meeting that we were having, and someone presented a great deal of data, and someone on the commission said, you know, it's really important and we're grateful for people's input. And from the very back of the room, the most important thing that was said in that entire process was said. Someone said, and I still to this day don't know who it was, someone said, We don't want to just have input. We want to have power in making decisions that will affect us. And that is the fundamental truth. Unless plans come forward that from the very beginning are co-designed and co-created by the most affected people, by the people who will be dealing with the institutions that are being redrawn and redesigned, then all of those plans, frankly, should fail, not because of the content or the details in them, but because if they're not created by the most affected, then they're honestly not ever going to be um, fully equitable for the most affected. So we have to get people at the table from the very beginning um, uh, who may not fit our archetype of leadership, who may not have gone to all of the right schools or speak all of the right words, but have a fundamental understanding of how these systems impact people every single day and put all of those folks in position to help us create the St. Louis that we deserve. Was there any part of Better Together that appealed to you? I'm thinking specifically that it seemed like part of the 
logic and rationale from some people were that if you had a more consolidated police force and you didn't have these very, very small police forces that were overwhelmingly white but policing an overwhelmingly black community, and it was part of a bigger system that had more diversity inclusion and more accountability, that somehow things like Michael Brown may not happen or be less likely to happen. Did you agree with any of that uh, that uh, that supposition? I thought it was an interesting proposal, but here's what I also think. I think the tinkering around the edges doesn't get us the the outcomes that we're looking for. Here's what I mean by that. Um, what we know to be true, uh, and especially what we believe as activists, is that this is not about bad a- apples spoiling the bunch. This is about a fundamentally um, problematic system, a system that is functioning exactly as it was designed to uh, keep people apart, to keep certain people subjugated, um, and to raise revenue, right, to raise profit. Um, those things aren't removed simply because you've got one large police department. You know, when we talk about a larger police department, we can look at St. Louis City. And when I was still living here, St. Louis City Police was under the direction of Sam Dotson, who came on this radio station and said that he didn't tear gas any peaceful protesters. Well, I was one of the peaceful protesters that got tear gassed by him. And we got tear gassed just as much by a more diverse, larger police department like city St. Louis City as we did by Ferguson Police, as we did by St. Louis County Police. So again, we're tinkering at the edges and not actually dealing with the roots of the systemic issues. You know, if you get a cold, you can take NyQuil to deal with the symptoms, right? The runny nose, the headache, the sleepless nights, but you might need an antibiotic to actually kill the virus. The question is, what are the plans that can be created from the communities that are most affected to actually get at the virus? If you had a magic wand or an infinity gauntlet or something where you could instantly change any one thing about any aspect of public life in the greater St. Louis area, what is that one thing that would have the most impact to get to the kind of change that you're that you're advocating for and looking for? That is a great question. It is a difficult one because I, I tend to not look at things as a single solution. And, and I know that, that you were very <laughs> so clear that it's, a it's, it's a multi-purpose thing, but sure. I have to be unfair and ask you, you know, no, what, what sure. is that, that highest priority, that one thing? For me, the highest priority would be removing the profit from the things that harm people and um, putting those resources in creating access. You, you say profit, but I'm wondering if it's it's is just as much covering costs at, as it is profit, because there are certainly some aspects of what you're talking about that yeah. that the, the the government that that is still losing money on. Nobody's making money on the workhouse, sure. but arguably they cover more of their costs by being by using cash bail. So I mean, I'm, I'm just I, well, that, that word profit. It's profit and or cutting losses. Well, so there are people who are making money off sure, of the workhouse, right? If you are the folks who own the phone cards that charge people $25 for a 10 or 15 minute call, you are absolutely making a profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so this is what I mean by removing the profit, but I'll give you another example. Okay. Um, Yes, we can talk about covering the salaries of police officers and covering the administrative costs of a police department as um, ensuring that there aren't losses and not necessarily a profit. But Mm -hmm. what about this? What if we look at the research that shows us that diversion programs and community reinvestment 
um, actually prevents crime, which would require less police intervention. So that you actually have a smaller police department in some of these spaces. You could have fewer officers and need less capacity because you have redirected those funds into reentry programs, into education programs, into the kind of community investments that give people whole and healthy lives so that they're not engaging in some of these other activities. So that's what I mean by removing the incentive for profit and actually being creative enough to reinvest in our communities in fundamentally different ways. Honestly, a lot of the issues of oppression that we deal with in St. Louis are issues of opportunity and access, that people can access the jobs, the education, the quality housing, and the quality health care. If we funded those things, instead of funded the punishment that we provide people when they deal with these issues of poverty and oppression, then we can actually see a different St. Louis. I want to thank activist, writer, and educator Brittany Packnett for joining us today. Brittany, great to talk with you. And as a reminder, you'll be speaking tonight at 7 o'clock at the Ethical Society of St. Louis. Um, and the event is a free event, but I believe res- uh, reservations are required. It's co-sponsored by Women's Voices Raised for Social Justice and will be moderated by Fox 2 News' Shirley Washington. Brittany, thank you very so much for joining us today. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7. KWMU.